Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Our series of local artists in their own words, speaking of the arts, today features muralist Elaine Stevenson. First, a delicious way to begin our observance of Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. You may know Eric Kim from his popular videos on the New York Times Cooking's YouTube channel. He is a New York Times staff writer, writes a monthly column for the New York Times magazine, and we can appreciate that Eric Kim takes pride in being born and raised here in Atlanta. He has a new cookbook, Korean-American, Food That Tastes Like Home, and joins us now via Zoom to talk about it. Eric Kim, welcome to City Lights. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This means especially a lot to me because it's Atlanta, so. (laughs) Well, back at you, and this book is just so gorgeously photographed as well as beautifully written, I must call attention to page 16 where there's a photograph of you on your 100-day birthday. This is a special Korean (laughs) celebration. Yeah, yeah, that's it's funny, you actually caught the the one typo in the book. Oh. <laughs> yeah, because you sure look older than three months on that. <laughs> it actually was a or our marketing director who was like, Eric, I, I think, I know you were precocious, <laughs> but I think maybe you weren't 100 days old. So there's there are two celebrations in Korean infanthood, which are um, the 100-day birthday, which usually the baby is, you know, propped up by the mother's arm. And then... <laughs> And then the second one is the one year birthday where I think it's the one year where the child gets to pick one of three objects and it kind of represents like what they will become. One is money. They'll become rich. The other is maybe like a pen or a crayon and they'll be like creative or a writer. And and of course I picked the pen. So it was a box of crayons actually. That was, I forgot what the second one was, but that was, it was that birthday at least. So it's, it's actually a one year anyway. (laughs) You heard it here first. <laughs> Boy, were you ever adorable. And okay, I guess there's something to it that you picked the pen or the crayon that led you to become a writer. <laughs> Early in the book, actually at the opening of the book, you state, only recently have I been able to embrace that I'm at once both and neither. And something else entirely. I am Korean American. What led to this recent insight? Yeah, that that line, sometimes I have to read the introduction for an event or something like that. And that part always makes my, my voice shake a little bit. I always get very emotional because, yeah, I think part of the journey of writing this book was realizing that I straddle these two nations, the United States and South Korea, and having to straddle your identity like that, it's a very 
it's kind of like holding tension in your jaw for your whole life. And then writing this book felt like releasing that tension and kind of giving out a big sigh. And so I wrote that line at the very end of the book process. And I really, I'm really proud of that line because I think it really examines what it's like to not feel like you belong in either world. And it's about creating your own world, your own stage for yourself. And my hope is that this book sort of does that, not just for myself, but for other Korean Americans who've maybe felt a little lost. Because I think this book is about me finding myself, as cheesy as that might sound, but it's a book of self-discovery for sure. And I, I wanted to get that across because it was no small feat where one finds oneself, right? I think that's a big, it's a big deal for a, for a young adult like myself. Sure. Yeah. Early in the book, you also write that you've been running away from home your whole life. Would you talk about finding your way back to Atlanta? Yeah, you know, the first thing I did when I graduated high school was move to New York. I, I wanted to go as far away from home as possible. I had two options. I, I had been accepted to a college in Nashville, but also in Manhattan. And at the time, I actually wanted to be a, a pop singer. I was, <laughs> I held a guitar and I I kind of played the rock club circuit. And I think the main decision of moving to New York was that I wanted to play rock pop and not country music in Nashville. So um, <laughs> no one really knows this about me, but it's, you know, I've always known that whatever my creative interests were, that they could lead me to New York or somewhere more, more exciting than my quote unquote boring hometown. And of course it took moving back home during the pandemic and being with my mother and to kind of really realize how much I took for granted about Atlanta and how magical it was to grow up there because at the end of the day, Atlanta had a huge Korean American community. It was a very diverse neighborhood I grew up in. And where was that? Oh yeah, I mean, Fulton County, you know, it was pretty, I lived among so many Asians. Most of my friends were Indian actually. And I think about that, the diversity of, not just various immigrant communities, but also types of people. And I, I learned a lot from these people, you know, and I, I think it takes going back home to as an adult and, and not just, you know, in that superficial way of going back for Thanksgiving or Christmas, it's really going back and living in the community again. That was a huge eye-opening pivotal moment in my life. And I really pay homage to some of the restaurants that really inspired my culinary tastes and my my predilections, you know, like the reasons we taste things the way we do and the reason we like certain things are often because of where we come from and what we ate when we were younger. And so this book sort of navigates that. And, and it's a real love letter to Atlanta, I would say. Definitely. <laughs> it was also very moving oh, to read you. your stories earlier in the pandemic, the stories about cooking with your mom, and you're a great essayist. Oh my God, Lois, you're the first person to ever call me an essayist, I think, and it's it's a, it's a title that I would like to occupy, you know, in a professional way. I, I, I guess I do write a monthly essay technically for the New York Times Magazine, it's a column, and the essay form is something I've always been so fascinated by, not least because you know, it's one of the first things you learn as, as a high school student or a college student, you know, when, when it's a homework assignment, it's an essay that's due and you got an A on your essay or a B or, and then later, later it becomes a personal essay and that's actually a literary form. And, and then I ended up teaching that essay form at Columbia when I was getting a doctorate there. And, and then I dropped that and then started writing more essays as a food writer. And my joke is that none of us ever really grow up and <laughs> life is just always school and you always have an essay due. Uh, just this time, like millions read it every not, month. So. Not, not bad. <laughs> and um, I'm glad that you want to own that title. I also have to tell you that blurbs are a part of marketing, I realize. But when I saw that one of my favorite writers and a 
literary beacon mm. in our time. Minjin oh Lee God. wrote one of your works. I, I thought, okay, he's got some cred. <laughs> I'm glad you you thought that's all hoax, but just kidding. She she's been such a huge supporter. You know, it all started on Twitter. I I used her a line from her novel Pachinko in a lead for one of my New York Times stories and she read it and she reposted it and we kind of became internet friends after that and she's just such a mentor to younger writers and I think having encouragement from someone like that someone who's so talented and successful but also just is really generous with her time and wants younger people to succeed as well that's that's a real star you know god she's she's incredible I saw that yesterday on Twitter. Obviously, I follow her on Twitter also. <laughs> Minjin Lee said how sad she yeah. was at having to limit the number of students in her class to 15. This yeah. is the part of teaching she doesn't like. Um, you know, I don't think many writers of that stature, I yeah. guess I'd like to think more of them think in terms of disappointing students, but I just thought that said a lot about yeah. her too. I read that too. I was My heart was so warmed, especially as one of those students who would apply to those workshops where only 15 kids got in. And I remember just, it was such a, it was such a fight to, to get in the room. And when you didn't get in the room, it was really sad. And it meant, it meant something about like your own writing and that you weren't worthy or something. But the fact that she tweeted that is really important. I mean, I think she really, she really believes in the youth of our, of our age. I think that's something that a lot of, a lot of adults maybe take for granted. I mean, myself included, I, when, it, when there's a young food writer who comes into my inbox, I, I always try to make time, but sometimes you don't have time and everyone deserves some attention, you know, I think, because that's how you start out. I feel like I started out writing because there were older, you know, more established writers who really took me under their wing. That's not nothing. Yeah. No. And speaking of starting out, Eric, did you really watch food TV instead of cartoons when you were a kid? <laughs> yes, I, I did watch food TV at least at four o'clock to seven o'clock. And then, you know, that's, that's when the best food network shows were on. Rachel Ray, Tyler Florence was one of my favorites. Gail Gand had this dessert show called Sweet Dreams. What a what a dreamy show. When when I was like 13, that was a <laughs> really that was a joy to watch. But then um I, I did turn to Nickelodeon at seven o'clock, cause seven and seven thirty was that was when Doug and Rugrats and Hey Arnold, there were those really good children's programming in the 90s, I would say. Those cartoons are about life, and I still watch them sometimes. <laughs> oh, cartoons are yeah. wonderful. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I can quote chapter and verse from Looney Tunes uh, and um, Rocky the Flying Squirrel, yeah. but I digress. <laughs> if you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. And my guest is the acclaimed food writer, Eric Kim. What were you learning as a child as you watched the Food Network? You know, I think the lessons were twofold. You know, first of all, I was learning basic culinary techniques, things like deglazing pans with wine. And I remember when my mom would start uh, <laughs> asking where the wine went. And I was like, I'm not drinking, I'm just cooking with it but, <laughs> and, um, and then I remember you know learning about pan sauces it's just really simple techniques I learned about bagged lettuce I learned that you could buy salad leaves in a bag and you didn't have to wash them and yeah that's <laughs> and correct. I, I learned basic things about what to look for at the grocery store because these really weren't things that my mom was bringing home you know as a Korean cook but uh, second fold like the, the things that I was also learning were about culture I think I was culture is relative you know and I think in that moment I was realizing that our kitchen was very different from all of my peers kitchens and I think that was a really nice lesson because it opened up my world a little bit I was like I am Korean but I'm also American and I really want to know what avocados taste like and <laughs> so I think that's how my curiosity started the television really helped and when I reported that story for the New York Times magazine I wrote about 
you know, this generation of children who came home from school to watch the Food Network. And all of these sources were around my age. They were all, you know, I don't know, 28 to 32 years old. And I just think it's so fascinating that these are all people who are now really good cooks because of everything they learned on the television. Yes. It's fascinating. Yeah. So how did food and cooking help you fully realize or appreciate your identity? You talked about observing the difference in your kitchen, in your parents' kitchen, and those of what you saw on TV. I was especially intrigued with what you described as Reagan-era Korean <laughs> yeah. food. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I come from a very specific generation. I mean, we all do, but I think defining who my generation is was a nice moment in the book, which is, you know, we're the product of Korean immigrants who immigrated to the United States in the 80s and brought over the food from the 80s. And one of my other blurbers, who's this really wonderful, famous YouTube star who, who taught me a lot about Korean cooking as well after my mother, Mang Chi, her name is Emily Kim. She's She called it a, an immigrant time warp. So, you know, as children of those immigrants, we grew up with very specific 80s style Korean dishes, you know, and, and then meanwhile in Korea, the 90s happen and <laughs> the aughts happen and food evolves, but I'm part of this generation where food kind of stood still and and so people think that Korean food is this one thing but my whole argument is that food evolves and we're also people who evolved that food from the 80s by using the ingredients we had around us and I think that's really what Korean American is about this book is trying to dispel that myth of authenticity in food like Korean food I, I just think there's this impulse to want to define something like that but what I'm trying to do is tell people that, you know, how you cook it is is authentic to you, and that's what matters, and that's sort of what my book documents, and I think the greatest, I'll just say this, that the greatest kind of compliment is from someone who sees the book and flips through it and, and sees themselves in it. I love reading comments like that. I get messages and emails all the time from readers who are like, thank you for writing this. Like, I finally feel seen in a cookbook, and the person might not even be Korean. There may be like, a child of Indian immigrants, or I think that it just speaks a lot to how food media has been so whitewashed, frankly. And I think there's this desire now to tell real stories and tell the truth. And I, I, I'd like to lean into that. Yeah. The first section of Korean American is titled TV Dinners, Fast Foods to Eat on the Couch. <laughs> I've got to tell you, when I saw that ribeye steak and how gorgeously photographed it was, I, I couldn't imagine eating that on my couch. <laughs> so what do you consider TV dinner fare, Eric? Oh, man, Lois. Uh, you know, I said couch because I was being polite. I eat that steak in bed. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think... Okay, so my mother and I have this really, maybe it's not a very healthy relationship to the television. Like we love television and more specifically, we love eating food in in bed in front of the television. Like my parents have always, uh, I'm going to embarrass them, but I don't know if it's a Korean thing or maybe other people have this too, but their bedroom just always had the biggest TV in the house. You know, it was like their their master bedroom the the queen bed or whatever and then across the way is the the huge tv and so they retire not to the couch but to their bed and <laughs> over christmas you know we we joined them in in that not just in the bed but like you know like lying around the bed and um my brother his wife all the dogs like <laughs> we're, and we, we, we watch movies on that you know in that bedroom because they love watching tv in in bed i think there's no greater pleasure i think it's bad for your back so I don't recommend it. Not but. if you've got some good support. <laughs> Speaking from experience here. Uh, I highly recommend it, though. It is messy, though. It's dangerous. You're, you're going to get culture junk butter on your sheets, but yeah. you, know, you can just you can just wash it. <laughs> exactly. And the ingredient you just mentioned, you do list in the opening 
definitions, I guess a glossary or description of basics one needs for Korean cooking. And then you sort of apologize that normally you hate sections like that, but because of the difference in alphabets and maybe that some of these items are not as readily available in certain areas than others. You describe that. So what would be a good recipe from this section for a beginner? Mm, Yeah, you know, I always mention the very second recipe. It uses the same gochujang butter. And gochujang butter is just gochujang, which is a fermented chili paste, super sweet, funky, spicy, hot, flavorful, very savory, super umami packed. And that chili paste tastes really good when stirred into butter. So I like to use that gochujang butter over toast, Mm. slice radishes really thinly. And, you know, we're headed into spring. We're We're about to get really good watermelon radishes. And if you slice those thinly and then soak them in ice water, they kind of curl like little flower petals. And it's a, it's very, a little indulgent, but like very simple. And when you put all of that together, you have a nice radish toast or a take on it that is very um, aromatic. And it teaches you a very basic pantry staple and what it tastes like. I, I love introducing people to these flavors. Maybe they've never had it. And one thing I like to do, for instance, when someone comes over is I, I put a little tenjang. Tenjang is fermented soybean paste. It's sort of like the sister to kochujang. And it's I think it's really important. And I think it's so delicious. And I just want more people to know about it. But instead of feeding someone a tenjang stew first, what I'll do is I'll put some tenjang on a spoon and drizzle some honey over it. Because I think tenjang is at its zenith when you have it paired with a glossy like sweet thing and and that bite makes people just like their it makes their eyes open up they're like whoa and it's kind of like introducing someone to a brand new taste and that what what a joy right like one of the reasons i eat at restaurants is so i can taste something brand new and that's really exciting to me when a chef can accomplish that because i've eaten a lot in my life and I, i eat a lot so yeah well, you stay trim, Eric. I guess you must oh, walk, like, <laughs> walk a lot or work out a lot, too. Oh, I, I hate working out, but I do walk my dog. She likes long walks. And yeah, it's a, uh, it's tough. It's tough, Lois. It's, uh, it's a lot of work. So thank you for noticing. <laughs> well, I saw that in this section, you yeah. add a teaspoon of sugar to your soft scrambled egg toast. Yeah. <laughs> which made me want to eat it immediately. <laughs> what inspired that? Oh, you know, it's funny. Um, it's really my brother's. When my brother was younger, he must have been, I don't know, eight years old. I was four. You know, he would make this sweetened soft scrambled egg and he would put it in between sandwich, like sandwich bread that was a little toasted and maybe in butter. And there's like ketchup and American cheese maybe. And it was his thing. And what's really fun about writing a family cookbook like this is you sort of have to interview your family and my mom thinks she did that first you know in my mind it makes sense for my mom to be like making us scrambled eggs and being like oh I would love to add some sugar to this because it's kind of like Japanese tamago when you add a little mirin into the eggs it's a little sweetness and it's really lovely right and we have so many custard dishes in just western cuisine that relies on eggs and sugar and that taste there's no reason why you can't have that in a savory context and but my brother thinks he did it first so we don't know who did it first but I credited my brother because he was you know he was very adamant that he did it first and it fit the story well and but um I do that now because of him I mean it's it's a really lovely simple egg toast looks great please tell us about the quiet power of gim Ooh, you know, you set me up well, because those two toasts, the gochujang butter radish toast, and then the soft scrambled egg toast, they're part of this trio of dinner toasts. And the third one is a roasted seaweed avocado toast. And I love this one because it really teaches you the flavors of kim. Kim is roasted seaweed. It's often sold at a place like Trader Joe's as roasted seaweed snack. And I think it makes sense. Like growing up, we did eat it like a chip. It was in the middle of the table always in kind of like this lock and lid. Do you use lock and lids? My mom loves those. They're, <laughs> they're, they're, they're really solid. And But, um, you know, there's always um, a nice pot, like tall pile of keem in there. And 
we eat it with our rice. It's it's a panchan. It's like a side dish with the meal. But afterwards, for kind of like a little nibble, we always reach into it for for a little more. It's sort of like a potato chip, and that's how we grew up eating it. And I I think growing up later in life, I started to crush it into anything. Like I crush it into pasta. Grits. I learned to make grits before I ever learned to make rice. Actually, um, being in, you know, being from Atlanta, <laughs> just like mm-hmm. I love the flavor of that seaweed because it's pure umami. It has qualities that it has a high glutamate quotient, which just means that our tongues will perceive umami to a very high degree when you eat seaweed in the way that one might feel when eating mushrooms or you know reduced tomatoes or. So it's that savoriness that like, I call it tongue latchingly savory. It's like, it like latches onto your tongue where you're mm. trying to like, not get it off, but like, you're just trying to like get even more of it. Sorry for these gross ASMR sounds. No, not <laughs> but, gross at all. I, I But I would think it's also, yeah. it has the added value of being so much healthier than yeah, other snack yeah. chips. It is. It is quite healthy. It's full of iron. It's it's a plant. So it really satisfies that salty craving if you have that. Yeah, but I have that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And then when you, you know, crush it into some avocado, it's wonderful because what I like to do is fortify the flavors that are already in that product, which are salt and sesame oil. And sesame oil lends this nuttiness. It's like that same kind of nuttiness that tahini provides. Man, Lois, I could talk about keem forever, but it really, that toast is a very special flavor symphony in your mouth, I would say. It's very simple and it's kind of, it's something that I ate a lot you know, growing up. I, it was often without bread, actually. I would just be mashing up some avocado with keem in, my, in a bowl and eating that after school because I loved, I loved avocado growing up. Pretty in presentation to the green. Yeah, the green is, is very yeah. good. At latter raised cookbook author Eric Kim, we'll return with more of our conversation in just a moment. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. Let's return to my discussion with the author Eric Kim. The New York Times food writer just published his debut cookbook, Korean American, Food That Tastes Like Home. Here, Kim explains why he believes kimchi is a verb, more of a technique than a single item. I'm, I've always been really fascinated by language and the, and the growth and development and evolution of language over time, and specifically Korean words. So it's really fascinating to me that, you know, the word kimchi has come to mean in the English lexicon, this one type of thing. It's this red spicy fermented cabbage dish but in reality kimchi in korean cooking is actually more of a method and a lot of things can be kimchi and kimchi in korean isn't literally a verb but i guess i'm i'm speaking in metaphor a little bit or an extended extended metaphor but i do think when you think of kimchi as a process, your world kind of opens up. That's why there are a lot of really fun kimchis in there. Um, there's a perilla kimchi. Perilla is like a, man, such a nutty, aromatic cousin of mint and shiso, but it's, it's it has its own grassy quality that 
really just calms the stomach. It's like really refreshing. And I love pairing it with fatty things like spam. And but my mom <laughs> yeah, makes kimchi I with that it. was funny. <laughs> Gourmet cooks and spam, not yeah. usually in the same breath. <laughs> not usually, but um, and it's it's sort of like the kim. I really have this fond spot for 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 spam because it's a great protein. It has so much salt and fat. And when you crisp it up, it's kind of like I don't know, a really good bologna or, you know, a real kielbasa or something like that, that's adding so much flavor to a dish. And historically too, it it's one of the most Korean American ingredients. It, you know, in the war, that's something that was, was left over when the American soldiers left Korea. And I, I just think it's, it's a fascinating historical object to me. And so for me, putting it in food, putting it in, you know, I maple candied it in my book because I just like, I like eating pork like that and bacon. I like maple candying my bacon. I think presenting it constantly and, and, you know, showing people that spam has evolved and showing people that it's, it's more than just what Americans might remember it from the wartime. It's, it's evolved into this pan Asian symbol of, I don't know, resilience or something. I, I just think it tells a big story. Yeah. Yeah, though you also point out that the very mention or sight of it mm. for some Koreans is a painful association. Yeah, exactly. Thanks for mentioning that. It's definitely, you know, there's a dish in the book called Pudetjige, and it's truly, that is actually a product of the war where army rations are used to create this stew. And so people in my grandmother's generation aren't so proud to see that, or they're they like, why are you showing that? You know, in our, it's a blot in our country's history. But I love the way in which Koreans have reclaimed dishes like that. And well, the irony now is that Pudichiga costs like 50 bucks at a restaurant. It's so expensive. <laughs> and so, and um, I have like five containers of it in my fridge because I, I like eating that when I come back from long trips. And I think of it as kimchi jjigae and ramen, sort of times nine, because then you add the spam and you add the sausages. I like to make mine with kielbasa and Italian sausage and breakfast sausage. And it's just a real hodgepodge of all your favorite <laughs> processed meats. And and, but what's really lovely is the resultant broth is if you make it right, it's, it's really, really ambrosial. I don't, I never use that word. I, I try not to, cause it's overwriting in food writing when to call food ambrosial, but it really transcends me for some reason. I, I like that flavor a lot. And I think I like that the meaning of that dish and the meaning of the Korean war and spam and all of these resonances of, of history, they evolve and they evolve as as a nation heals and, and as we work through trauma. And I think it's also very Korean to accept the pain with the, the pleasure. I think that that's a really Korean thing. And um, there's a saying, Lois, that I think you might appreciate. If you, and I do this all the time, but if you laugh after you cry, there's a proverb that says that you'll grow hair out of your butt. So... <laughs> <laughs> There's a yeah, you can't have the negative without the positive, you know. I think it's important to laugh oh, um, yeah. after you cry, and it's important, yeah. And well, you do capture the poetic, <laughs> I, I, I don't think quite in, in that same way, but when you write about kimchi, you say that it's a way to preserve the past and have it with you forever. Talk about metaphors, <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, I have a great story for you, uh, Lois. Also, this is like one of my favorite interviews I've ever done. I just want you to know oh, that. Thank you. Oh. Thank you for asking such interesting questions. Thank you. Yeah. So I have a great story. My mom, one day at dinner time, she took out this 10-year-old jar of kochujang that my grandmother had made. And, you know, at this point, my, my grandmother, you know, had been dead for maybe 10 years. And we buried her in a beautiful mountain in, in Korea. And um, we visit her every year, but it's it's my dad's mother, and my mom kind of surprised him with it. It's not that she was hiding this ten year old culture junk that my grandmother had made. It's that it was like in the freezer and kind of like in the back. And when she found it, she brought it out. She thought it. We had it with some chicken and rice, and it was just so cool to surprise my dad with that and to see his reaction. And he took a bite, and he was 
he didn't like cry or anything. It wasn't one of those like climatic, dramatic moments, but it was a quiet beauty. Like he was sort of like, I think he was in shock. He was like, I just didn't think I would get to eat this like taste ever again, you know? And I think when he said that, that was a real, I was maybe only a quarter into the book writing process. And so after that moment, the thesis of the book really became like, write down your family recipes before it's too late, before it's too late. And I also like to pin that with, it's never too late, really, if you have your taste memories. And my dad's not a cook, but, you know, if he described it to me, I could probably try to re recreate his his mother's like gochujang. And so I think it's in recreating the foods of our family members that we're able to kind of preserve them forever and have them with us. And I also say it's not just in the taste memory and having that bite of food. Like for instance, when I, I I tweeted about this and the way Twitter works is like, sometimes it just goes really viral and out of control. And I went really viral, like uh, 500,000 people saw that video. And, and then a slew of comments under that thread about that 60 year old bottle that grandpa Joe made and they finally popped it open at on his like 100th birthday or something. I don't know, like th there are like all these stories that people had about the precious things we keep in the freezer because our loved ones, you know, have touched them. And so I think this is a really, uh, this book is just like so much more than just a document of my family's recipes, but it's, it's a thesis statement about when you're cooking through the food of your past, you're also bringing those people with you and you're, you're, you're following in their actions. It's like, oh, grandma chopped the onions like this. That's really interesting. I didn't know that. And I, I think that's one way to really access your family. Oh, it's just beautiful to realize the power of food like yeah. the story you just described with yeah. with your dad in that moment you mentioned taste memory i was hoping you would talk about son is it son mat oh yeah that's good son mat yeah son mat. son mat yeah that means um hand taste in korean and you know it was a really important thing for me to sort of try to write about and define because I think it explains the immeasurable quality of my mother's food and the immeasurable quality of quote unquote one's mother's food where, you know, trying to write down a recipe of a thing that is never measured. It's a real, I describe it as trying to pull teeth out of a tiger's mouth. It's, it's really difficult <laughs> because sometimes cooking is just about feeling and about taste and it's about flow and how do you how do you document that? And my job as the writer of this book was to approximate, you know, my mother's cooking with measurements. But I also wanted to let people know that it will always just be an approximation because she's the her food. You know, it comes from her hands, it comes from her her tongue. And so I love that there's this there's this word my hand taste that really gets at that immeasurable quality. And it's a really lovely concept that kind of spans cultures in Arabic it's nafas and Reem Cassis the wonderful food writer who, who's, who's based in Philly she wrote a piece about nafas for the New York Times and I don't know do you feel this way about cooking Lois do you think it's immeasurable sometimes I do there's a Yiddish expression that shit or which a yeah. little of this a little of that mm. I think in German it's the same you can't describe the portion, you have to know it, you have to be able to understand that the taste is just right as you taste it, as you're fixing it. it, it it's glorious how it's common to all cultures. Nice. And this is how Mama Jean cooks. Speaking of Jean, whom I feel like I'm on a first name basis with her after you <laughs> She is drop dead gorgeous. Oh, I'll tell her that well, right now. I, I mean, oh, oh. Such a... yeah, she's just pretty. She's beautiful. Yeah. And the garden of Jean is <laughs> a wonderful <laughs> chapter in the book. Thank you. Would you speak a bit about your your parents' gardening and its ever expanding size? You know, I think my mom has always had a green thumb. She's always good with plants and taking care of things. But we moved a lot when we were little and not necessarily different cities or different states. We, we, we moved houses because 
I don't know, we got tired of the old house and then we would move into a slightly, a house that was slightly closer to my dad's office and then even closer. And just each house was, had a garden that was bigger than the last. And my joke in the book is that I'm waiting for them to buy a farm next because my mom loves, uh, she loves spending time in her garden. She, in her, in her backyard, she, she also plants flowers and she just really loves, um, I think she likes growing her own food. I think my, one of my favorite passages in the chapter is about the perilla plant, or maybe it's in the kimchi chapter actually, but my mom has a perilla plant and the, the whole thing about perilla is that it sort of grows like wildfire. And it looks sort of like, is it philodendron, those Ooh, lush, yeah, yeah, yeah. beautiful leaves? I mean, the shape is wonderful. Yeah, it's a wonderful, leafy, gorgeous looking plant. If it were in the right formation, it would maybe look like poison ivy but oh <laughs> but i think i think because of that actually it prevents deer and other little animals from you know snacking on your tomatoes and so it, it's a real magical plant my mom plants it all around the garden to sort of have it protect the other plants and you know it's a real workhorse of a plant and but she also just i think she's waiting for the day for those perilla plants to really just go off because the joy of having a perilla plant is picking the leaves and gifting it to people. And she's someone who loves gifting um, from her garden and she grows tomatoes and carrots and like cucumbers. And she, she does, uh, she grows jalapenos because that's sort of one of her favorite chili peppers to cook with. And it's, it's lovely to be able to go to the backyard and just pluck a jalapeno when you need a little heat, you know, it's like right off the vine. It's really idyllic, which is why I call it garden of pain. <laughs> oh, well, I love learning about the perilla plant. I wasn't familiar with it, and I adore mint, and I also appreciate the stomach-calming aspect of it. So I, I got to get to know some perilla. Yeah, please, please. And uh, next time I'm in town, I'll just, like, I'll just send you some. Um... Oh, so special. Now, could we get back to the love letter to Atlanta, which you mentioned a specific bakery? And you end with a beautiful chapter on sweets. Would you talk about a couple of the restaurants, the places in Atlanta that helped form your food identity? Yeah, sure. The Korean bakery chapter wasn't going to exist. I really just thought I was writing a Korean cookbook, so I just didn't think that desserts really f formulated in this narrative because... Growing up, we ate cut fruit, you know, after dinner, that was sort of dessert for us, like always an apple chopped up. And, you know, that is that in and of itself is an act of love. Like if you've ever had a plate of fruit that's cut for you, like that, it's a really nice eating experience. <laughs> you know, I, I take that for granted now and probably why I don't eat that much fruit because it, it takes so much work to cut it. But um, I think the, the, the bakery I realized specifically this one bakery called White Windmill and it's on Buford, Buford Highway and it's equidistant to, you know, the church I grew up in, the flute lessons I went to, my dad's stores, and like our favorite Korean restaurant called Don Quixote. It's closed now, but I, you know, I think the bakery I realized told the story of how a Korean immigrant community could gather and have a safe space to meet. And because prior to having Korean bakeries like White Windmill, my mom would meet other Koreans at the McDonald's play place, you know, like when we were little. We would go and have a happy meal and that's where she would meet other Koreans who were also sort of like looking for community and I think it's a really beautiful story about how immigrants are able to find their own in a new place and um and but not only that I just totally grew up eating those cream cakes like you would go to the Korean bakery like a white windmill there are other brands in in Atlanta I really, I especially like this one called Vincent. They they have pretty good stuff. And anyway, these Korean bakeries have these cream cakes and it's always like a whipped cream sort of frosting, a very light, almost diaphanous, golden buttery sponge layer. And then there's always a lot of fruit, always strawberries and kiwi and maybe some blueberries, peaches, depending. And I just think that cake fits the, the palate of a lot of Koreans I know who always say, sweet, but not too sweet, you know, that's like the kind of dessert you want. And when you bring one of those cakes to a birthday party, it's, it's, it's sort of a, the pro move if you're in, a, in the Korean American community in Atlanta. And anyway, I, I really, I loved 
also interviewing that that woman, Sung Hee Kim. She she started those bakeries in There's Atlanta. Cafe Mozart, one of them. Ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We used to love that one. They do, you know what they do really well? They do coffee cream cakes, like espresso roulades and like stuff like that. They do a lot of coffee flavored desserts. And Koreans love coffee flavored desserts as well because not to, you know, say it have a blanket statement out there, but like it's bitter, you know, coffee adds a little bitterness. Coffee desserts are for people who maybe don't like things that are too sweet. And anyway, what is, what's your favorite dessert, Lois? Ever. Well, ever. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think the brownie <gasps> is a perfect yeah. food. <laughs> perfect. You don't need utensils. You don't need a plate. I mean, uh, it's biodegradable. Uh, <laughs> it's chocolate. I will say that your lava cake captured my fancy oh please please try it it's it's you know it has a little gochujang in there and that savory fermented taste it doesn't like overwhelm the chocolate or anything but it it adds this third note that just makes your tongue do that thing you know <laughs> it's it's a very brownie like dessert actually you would like that i think so and <laughs> that also reminds me of the quote when in doubt listen to your tongue you say <laughs> yeah you know I, I loved what we were talking about but I also think there's something to be said for taste memory right we were, we were talking about that a little bit but James Beard is someone who really wrote about taste memory often and I think one thing he's sort of getting at is that the memory of the dish is maybe more important than what it actually was I've always believed that personally because you know, the very first time I made kimchi alone, I, th I remember being like 21 years old. I was in this really crappy apartment in Manhattan and I was trying to make kimchi with like a square foot of counter space, you know, and which was fine because my mom always made kimchi on the floor anyway, like in these huge tubs. And so, <laughs> and so that shouldn't have to stand. And it's sort of just, I realized that even though my recipe maybe wasn't 100% according to how she did it, because I was really I overcompensated a lot with sugar and like salt, but whereas she would use more umami rich ingredients like fish sauce and salted fermented shrimp. But I did, I still was able to approximate the flavor of it. And I remember thinking, even though I was approaching that batch of kimchi without any expertise, because again, it was my very first time, I think it, it tasted really, really good and tasted pretty close to my mother's. And I think it's because I knew how to taste it, you know, and tasting, I've always felt that the most important thing about learning how to cook is learning how to eat first. You have to know how to eat. <laughs> Atlanta raised New York Times food writer Eric Kim. His debut cookbook, Korean American, Food That Tastes Like Home, is available now. More information can be found on our website, wabe.org. Coming up, the next installment in our series of local artists in their own words, speaking of the arts. Today, featuring muralist Elaine Stevenson. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of the Arts, where we hear some of Atlanta's creative artists in their own words. My name is Elaine Stevenson, and I'm an artist, designer, and muralist in Atlanta, Georgia. I create murals that are bright, colorful, and positive to uplift and inspire. I have artwork all around the city. My primary styles of murals would be uh, typography or lettering, plus flowers. I also do some geometric and abstract murals. I got seriously started in art about four years ago, but I've been an artist my whole life. And in college, I majored in graphic design and have been a professional graphic designer for the past 10 years. So my design background really influences my art. And in 2018, I applied for my first public art call project where I got to paint a mural in the Old Fourth Ward. And ever since then, I've been hooked on murals and have been painting as many as I can. 
What motivates me as an artist really is seeing my artwork large and in the public space where people can view it and interact with it. And it's really just satisfying to bring my ideas to fruition and go through all the physical labor of creating a mural um, and then see the finished product. I'm also in my work inspired just by colors. I love bright colors, nature. I frequently paint flowers and plants and typography and lettering from my graphic design background. I love living in Atlanta. I was actually born here and grew up just north of the city in Roswell. So I've lived in Georgia most of my life, um, minus about one year. And I really just love the city and love all there is to do and to see. I feel like it's a really inspiring place that has a lot of possibilities for everyone. And I would say the city has definitely influenced my art, especially in its reputation, fighting for civil rights and social justice. I'm really interested in supporting those movements with my artwork. There are so many places in Atlanta to go to see art and be inspired. One of my favorite places is MODA, the Museum of Design in Atlanta. They always have interesting out-of-the-box exhibitions to go see. One of my favorite galleries downtown is Cat Eye Creative. They have very edgy and unique artworks from up-and-coming artists. And I love seeing public art and murals out in town, of course. And Cabbage Town is probably the best place to do that, walking along the Ford Warrior Wall to see all the new art. You can follow me on Instagram to see my work and on my website, eileenstevenson.com. I have lots of photos of my murals. And if you're driving around town, you'll probably drive by some of my murals as well. I have a power box by Pont City Market outside of Dancing Goats. And I have several murals at Atlantic Station and in the West End. In the West End, I actually painted a bridge underpass mural and a basketball court mural that are really close together to each other. Muralist Elaine Stevenson and our series Speaking of the Arts. More information about Stevenson's work is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., the one and only John Waters stops by with inspiration and welcome insanity from his new novel, Liar Mouth. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at LOIS. R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.